Good morning, family. It is so nice to be back in in this building with y'all. I've been starting to say y'all more since I had to go to go to the Carolinas twice, and uh, it's rubbed off on me just a little bit. But it is great to be back with you. Today we are uh, reading the the second part of of Psalms ten. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands, to you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Cause wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is God's word. All glory, honor, and praise be to God. Thank you, Jeff, for that. We uh, talk a lot about teaching book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We are indeed a very Bible-obsessed church, and uh, I like to go through this exercise on occasion. Um, I'm not exactly sure how we, how we get the way that we are here, but uh, the pulpit here is very well appointed in terms of storage, and I often marvel at the number of Bibles we seem to amass over t- over time. John and I have a bit of a a bit of a problem here. Um, so right now, that's what we're that's what we're working with. So that's the record. That's the record so far. Um, so it's it's a good problem. If you want to develop a really uh, problematic habit for your bank account, um, talk to John and I about custom premium Bibles. Um, oh, there's actually more in here. Uh, this is my old Nelson Premium. I saw somebody trying to sell this or buy one of these online for twelve hundred dollars. Um, so this is a Nelson Premium Capskin. Its only issue is it's a it's an NKJV, so I struggle with it. But it's so soft, it feels like butter. So if you want to feel a premium Bible, uh, come up and, and grab that. We've got customs up here as well. This is a custom rebind. This was a fifteen dollar Bible that used to fall apart underneath my fingernails. It was stolen from me and, and rebind rebinded. So. If you want to learn about YAP and Bibles, uh, glad to glad to talk about that. And that said, speaking of the Bible, we're continuing in our study of Psalm 10. We read uh, verses 1 through 11. We studied together through verses 1 through 11 of that psalm last week. And so this week, we come to verse 12 through 18. Um, and in the trajectory of this scripture, I think I shared that a lot of people um, see Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 perhaps as one unit together. Uh, Psalm 9 introduces itself as being by David. 
some commentators, even though Psalm 10 doesn't, doesn't say who wrote it, some commentators would see this as a continuation and they would attribute Psalm 10 to David as well. Um, there are definite, definite differences in the way that Psalm 9 ends on a high note and then Psalm 10 starts on a low note. But interestingly, what we'll see here in verses 12 and 13 is the psalmist is really rounding out his frustrations and his anger, frankly, at what's going on in the world around him. But there's an interesting observation when we round the corner after verse 13, and it's as though in verse 14 something happened to change the psalmist's mind. So I would encourage you, when you see those pivots, those hard turns, how does someone go from just being down and in the dumps and wondering, God, are you even with me, to then turning to glorying in who God is? So I would encourage you to ask yourself, what caused the psalmist to change course? What happened from verse 1 through verse 13? When he gets to verse 14, what happened to cause him to change course? And then, after you wrestle with that, is there something that I can learn from this? Is this something that I can apply to my life? How do I catch myself and when I'm wallowing? How do I catch myself when I'm down? How do I catch myself when I'm frustrated and, and purpose to change that? Um, John Piper's church gave him, uh, I think they call it a um, writing. What is it when pastors take vacation? They call it something different. Yeah, thank you, sabbatical. They gave him a writing sabbatical every year. And so desiring God puts out the books that he writes on his sabbatical, and they're freely available online. You can just download them and read them. You can buy them in print if you'd like, but otherwise you can download them. And he wrote a book called, uh, I think it's called What to Do When I Don't Desire God. Excellent, excellent book on tempering your heart. You know, I think as believers, we want to think we wake up every morning, you know, with an extra pep in our step, excited to face another day as a soldier in Christ's army. Our feet hit the ground, we grab our little Bible, we go out to the porch and we, we spread it out on the table and we make our coffee, right? And we put it in front of our Bible and then maybe we make, make like a small snack and now the scene is set to take pictures for Instagram and Facebook of our devotional time. And then we take those pictures with the coffee handle turned the right way and then we close our Bible and go on throughout our day. But sometimes that's not our morning experience. Sometimes you wake up and you don't feel like reading. It, what are you to do when you don't feel like reading or praying? And that can be a reality in the Christian life. And so let's see in this Psalm 10, how does the, how does the psalmist apply balm to himself? And so throughout each of our Christian experiences, there can be temptation at times perhaps to liken God's patience with the world around you, liken God's patience in your own life to indifference, maybe, to thinking God is indifferent to the course of your life, to thinking God is indifferent to the affairs of your life, the affairs of the world around you, or worse, maybe thinking that God's patience is evidence that he doesn't exist. If, if the world is like this, if things like this occur, can God even be real? And so we'll see the psalmist turns himself to some biblical principles. We would recognize them in that way today. They're biblical principles in this perfect, finished Word of God. And so we would do well now having these 66 books, the finished Word of God. If you want to hear God speak, Scripture is 
the preeminent place to go. It's the only place to go. If you want to know what God says on a matter, it's in the Word. He has spoken. And so, one major lesson that we'll learn today is that God cares for His people like a father, but more perfectly. God cares for His people like a father, but more perfectly. So first in Psalm 10, we'll go through this in little chunks. Psalm 10, verse 12. Let me get there myself. Can somebody, if somebody can help uh, Adam Nicholas find that. It's kind of in the middle. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Oftentimes, in the Psalms, we see the psalmist crying out to God for help and for action. Psalm 3 and verse 7, Arise, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 7, verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Psalm 9, verse 19. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. And so the the psalmist lament over the previous 11 verses, have given this kind of view towards despair. By the time you hit verse 12, you you yourself are starting to feel a little bit lower reading what the psalmist is saying, reading how the psalmist is, is struggling with God. And that's interesting because, you know, that's one of the things I love so much about Scripture is it gives an accurate description of who we are as people, and it gives an accurate description of what life is actually like. Because if I picked this book up and I went to something like the Psalms and it was just a bunch of happy, bubbly stuff, I would probably close this book and move on because that is not life. That's not reality. That's like lifetime television shows. But that's not reality. Our experience is life in a fallen world. And it's so funny because sometimes we trip and fall into consequences of a fallen world and we're surprised and Then we go to the Scriptures and we realize, oh, it's everywhere. We're always going to have these. The Scriptures tell us that all of creation groans with the pangs of the fall. And so the psalmist's lament over these 11 verses have left us feeling despair, maybe, if we're tracking with them. And as much sometimes as we don't like to admit it or we don't fully own it, we're but dust. This is how God formed Adam, was from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. We're dirt. We're made of the dust of the ground. We think very, very highly of ourselves, but we're creatures from a creator who has decided for whatever reason to love us. You'll see that in Psalm 103 and verse 14. We are fickle. And because of that, as we said last week, we, we take this view from under the sun and we look up and we try to describe everything around us. 
And when we do that, we can miss out on who God is, the, the grand nature of God. We can miss the truths about God that are sweeping in all over Scripture that God created is the most incredible thing. And that's the first thing that humanists, scientists want to do is try to erase God from everything and describe it away. And it makes us look ridiculous. I mean, no matter how, how many billions or, or trillions of deca-eons you go backwards, you still have to have a prime mover. You can never describe everything by some natural occurrence because you always have to ask, well, then how did that first thing exist? Or if there was a, an explosion, why were there laws of thermodynamics? Why were those consistent? Why was there able to be an explosion in the first place? You, always, you can never reduce to nothing. And so the scriptures tell us with authority who God is. The book of Genesis starts out and says, in the beginning, God. It doesn't describe, it doesn't argue the case for God. It starts to a reasonable people who the scriptures say can look around and say, this is created. Right? I've said time and time again, if, if, I was to, if we were to walk in here together one Sunday morning before service and you know we, we unlock the front doors and we come in and no one's been in here and leaning up against this beautiful piece of furniture here is a painting, an amazing painting of a person's face. And you said to me, wow, did you do that? And I said, no, 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 it just showed up. You would say, that's ridiculous. A painting of a person can't just appear. But we would take that same answer and allow that to account for the existence of everything. Oh, it just appeared one day. That's ridiculous. It's patently ridiculous. And so if we look to the world around us from under the sun and we try to describe everything that we see by our own understanding, we try to just make things up, we will start to understand things from a human perspective and, and by the trajectory of our own thoughts, we'll begin to deny God everywhere. And it's discouraging. And so if you find yourself in a, in a place this morning where, where you're discouraged, maybe if you're a person who's tempted to being discouraged, it's good to know this about ourselves. Uh, remember, we are but dust. So the question becomes not, do I have temptations? The question becomes, what are my temptations? And as a matter of being a Christ seeker, I want to, I want to have less of that. So if you're someone who is tempted towards discouragement and despair, you would do well to study the promises of God. It's medicinal. It's a great study um, there's a book that R.C. Sproul wrote called The Promises of God, Discovering the One Who Keeps His Word. Um, that would be a great study if you are tempted towards discouragement. And I think that's what we see in the psalmist here, is he's just, he's discouraged. He feels like God is so far off. He sees the things that are happening in the world around him, and he thinks, God, why would you allow this to occur? Psalm 10 verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Observing all of the evil around him, he's confused and desperate and crying out to God. And maybe this feels foreign. This kind of feels like you shouldn't talk to God like this, right? A lot of us were raised like you don't run in the sanctuary because that's God's house, right? And so we kind of have this faux reverence all around us. And, and what that can kind of do is actually put a plastic fence between us and God. And so we feel like we need to present ourselves to him in prayer, but in ways that actually make us look good. 
right? <laughs> and we hide away those areas of ourselves that, that, that aren't of pure moral character. And, and we kind of are like Adam, right? We think we can hide in the garden and God can't find us because we've got a super sweet hollowed out log that God will surely not find us in. But that's far from the truth. Why did the wicked renounce God? Um, I, I like uh, John Calvin reflects on this, and, and I liked it a lot, so I, I'm going to just read it. Um, he said, It is indeed superfluous to bring arguments before God for the purpose of persuading him to grant us what we ask. But he still permits us to make use of them and to speak to him in prayer as familiarly as a son speaks to an earthly father. It should always be observed that the use of praying is that God may be the witness of all our affections. Not that they would otherwise be hidden from him, but when we pour out our hearts before him, our cares are hereby greatly lightened and our confidence of obtaining our requests increases. I love, I love that observation because it, it, with that perspective, we don't feel like we need to hide things away from God. We feel like we can come and we can, we can just communicate with God just like we would with, with our own father, our own dad, if we don't have a bad relationship with him. If we do, the way that we would like to be able to communicate with our own father or our own dad. This, this, this is the way that we bring our cares, our fears, our angers, and our frustrations before God. And you see it all over the Psalms. It's what the psalmist does. The psalmist is honest. The psalmist puts things in front of God like you, you kind of feel cringy sometimes. You're like, oh, I don't know if I would say that. What's interesting is that formulating our thoughts, it's like God said to Adam in the garden. He said, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Think about what's going on. He wanted Adam to reflect on himself. Why? Why did God ask Adam, Adam, where are you? It wasn't one of location. It was a question to make Adam think, where am I? What's going on? Why have I done this? Where was my heart? Why was I reacting in these ways? And so there's a way in which formulating our thoughts and bringing them to God in prayer is cathartic. It's just the whole practice of bundling up all of our perspective around something forcing ourselves to step back and think about a thing, think about a way that we feel, and bundling them up into just an open prayer time with God is medicinal. It's helpful. Just that process is helpful. It's not as though we're trying to ask it in a way so that we trap God into having to do it. We're bringing these things for, before God for, for a purpose. So here's some thoughts from Scripture. Um, don't, you, you can, you'll sprain your fingers if you try to keep up, but you may if you'd like. They'll come up on the screen, and, and they're in the bulletin in front of you. Um, but I'm going to rattle through a few Scriptures uh, that I think are helpful when we, when we think on prayer. Uh, so first is Matthew chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Here's what it said. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? These are my favorite scriptures. Okay, we're going to read another one about a scorpion in a minute. But if your son was to come to you and make a request for bread, would you give him a rock? I don't care who you are. That's actually kind of funny. Right? Like, like, who, like, would your child come to you and say, you know, Dad, Mom, I want a sandwich. And you say, here's a rock. Yes, I would do that because I think it's funny. No, I would not deny them actual food and give them a rock because I'm cruel and heartless. The argument says, how much better, how much more pure, how much more loving, how much more perfect is God? Would you bring your request for him for something that you need and he wouldn't deliver it? No. Would you bring your request before him for something that is honoring and helpful and he would just decline you? No. So if you put that frame of reference on, and, and this is free. If you put this frame of reference on, you go to God in prayer and you ask for a thing, I immediately feel better now that I've asked because I know that God is a good and caring and loving and holy and awesome God. And if I have asked for him and if it would be good for me, if it would be aligned to his glory, if it would be in line with his will, he will make that happen for me. And so now I immediately feel better no matter the circumstance because I've made my request known before God. Luke 11, 10 through 12. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I wish my kids would ask for these kinds of things. Dad, may I have an egg? Sure. No, we want $400 Nikes. Eggs. And fish would be a great request for me. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 27. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? Maybe you read that and say, yeah, yeah, I get it, but I've got all these things going on. I've got stuff that I have to do. I have things that, are, that need to be accomplished. Read it again. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? This is talking about the value that God places on you as a person and saying, he cares for you. Take those concerns, make them known before God. It is cathartic to bundle up all of your cares and your worries in pure honesty. The areas in your life where you're tempted to sin, bring them before God. With these promises aligned, it's helpful. So what's the common thread in these? It's that God is active. It's that God is alive. And it's that God cares for his people like a father, but even more perfectly. Fatherly care delivered perfectly for you if you're found in Christ. Now, if you're not a believer 
don't hear me saying, you can pray for, for whatever you want. God's going to give it to you. He cares about you. He, uh, you know, he has all of these things and gifts and wonderful things that he wants to bestow upon you. The only prayer that God hears from a non-believer is one requesting salvation. If you're not in a line with God and you're going and praying to him about things, you are a noisy gong. If you're not a believer, the prayer that you should offer up is one that requests forgiveness and desires to be aligned to Christ as Lord and Savior who repents from trusting yourself and turns towards trusting God in Christ. This is the prayer that God desires to hear from you. But to the believer, the common thread that I'm drawing, drawing through these scriptures, and that's there in the scriptures, is that God is active, that God is alive, and that God cares for his people like a father, but more perfectly. And so prayer and talking to God are cathartic because it, can, it, it, it causes us to think about our fears, our worries, our concerns, our angers, our glories, right? This is not just, a, this is not just the complaint department. We can go to God about the things that we're excited about. We can go to God just marveling in who he is. Our time in prayer is time where we're, we're spending time together with God. Knowing that he cares for us more than the flower of the fields or the birds of the air, giving us not a scorpion instead of a, instead of a fish or a stone instead of bread, it should give us confidence in knowing that God does not withhold good from us. There's two scenarios, and those are the ones that God allows, and those are the ones that God causes, and nothing falls outside of that. He either permits it, and the book of Romans tells us that all things work out to the good of those who are called according to his purpose, or he causes it. Meaning, he's, if, if his will is that this will happen, that is the thing that's going to happen. This is why you see that, um, uh, you know, God is, not, God is not guessing or projecting what he thinks is going to happen in the future. God doesn't look down time and say, I think that person's going to choose me, so I will now elect that person. This, this is not how God works. He foretells what will occur. You see so many prophecies about Christ across the scriptures, God is causing these things to happen. Um, in Sunday school, I, I, John, I can't remember, John, if it was you or who, maybe it was Roy, was, was talking about the story of Joseph, that the Christly, the priestly line had to come through this story. Um, and there's so many pictures of who Christ is and fulfillment that was going to come through that one person, and God caused all of it. Right? Why is it that Joseph had dreams that made his brothers so angry they wanted to murder him and then they wanted to take him and throw him in a hole and some slave traders happened to walk by and they decided to sell him and then those slave traders brought him to a place where he would be in the most powerful position in the kingdom after being thrown into jail and then somehow was forgotten about while in jail and then came out and was ruling over everything and then his brothers who had originally sold him had to come and, and he completely forgave them. God drove that story for our good. Now make yourself be Joseph for a minute. Great story to read. Bad story maybe if you're Joseph. Probably a few times he was like, really? This is my life? 
I'm in jail right now. My brothers have me in a hole right now. I was just telling them about my dreams, man. Realizing that God is alive and active and that he is here for our good can allow us to drive through lots of really dark times in our lives. Because God causes things and allows things, but nothing is outside of his control. He hasn't just spun the world up like some top and put it on a table and it spins out of control doing whatever it is that it will. Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is how our honesty with God gives us a bold confidence. Honesty in prayer is actually one of the reasons that I sometimes struggle with the concept of public prayer. Because public prayer can morph into public oration. And maybe you've heard, like when you've heard people praying before, you drift, you say, well, wait, are, you, are you talking to me or are you talking to God? I can't really tell what it is that you're doing right now. If you're talking into the people in the room or if you're having an open conversation with God and plea to him or placing things in front of him that you're excited about, or are you instructing people and saying it's prayer? Very confused right now. In Matthew 6, where Jesus cautions not to be anxious about your life, he says this in verses 5 and 7. And when you pray, again, I like when it starts off like this, right? It doesn't say, hey, if you think about praying or if you're the kind of person who prays. Um, he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, at the street corners, so that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. You've been in that situation before. Someone's praying and praying, and now your eyes are kind of getting tired of being closed, and you open one of them, you're looking around. Heard a story one time of Billy Graham. Uh, you can imagine the kinds of experience Billy Graham has. Poor dude just wants to eat some dinner. Somebody invites Billy Graham over for dinner, and they start praying and praying. Praying, praying. And Billy Graham said, and thank you for keeping the food warm. Amen. Just to stop this cycle, right? Knowing that God cares for us and that he doesn't withhold good from us and that the design for prayer is that we bring our concerns and our worship and our celebration, our fears and our angers before God, and knowing that we are heard should transform our very prayer lives. It should change the way that we live, knowing that God says he won't withhold good. If you're asking for bread, he's not going to give you a rock. If you, want, uh, you know, if, you, if you want something and it's good for you and it's aligned to his will, he's going to bestow that on you. James 5, 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. All over the scriptures when we read about prayer, it doesn't, it doesn't call us to some kind of a coy, flavorless prayer life. It calls us something vastly different. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The psalmist, in these first 13 voices of Psalm 10, has lamented and concludes in 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? See, he's, he's starting to say, well, these people see the world differently. Think about um, Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is in its blood and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So as he's lamenting, Will you not call to account? Perhaps his mind is thinking, wait, I know God's going to call to account. This is the importance of hiding the word of God away in our hearts that we might not sin against him when we're struggling with things. Maybe as we kind of bundle up that, that, that package of things that we're fearful of, we're struggling with, that we're afraid of, and, and, and we, we put our thoughts together and we start to think about them. We say, wait a minute. I know that that passage says this in this way, and that's not exactly in line with how I'm presenting this. The truth of God tells me something different. And that's that process of growing and maturing in our understanding. And, and that's what the Christian life is about, is maturing. Um, when you first become a believer, you know, for, for many people, the experience is kind of similar. You first become a believer, you're so excited about everything. You just, you want to argue anything with anyone and and, and, and go through specific apologetics and, and show people how they're wrong. You want to share your testimony. You're just so excited and appreciative, and that's fantastic. Sometimes that can fade for some people, and it's important to restoke that, to get back into the Word, to be excited. The, the, the Word is living. You have not exhausted it, I promise you. I don't care how old you are. 
how long you've been a believer, how much you've studied, how many doctors or PhDs or masters or whatevers you have behind your name. You have not exhausted the word of God. That's why it's so exciting. It's life-giving to know how incredible this word is. Matthew 12, 36. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Remembering the full scope of the word of God helps protect us from despair. Now this Matthew passage, clearly not yet available to the psalmist, but guess what? It is available to you, right? So as you start finding yourself struggling and thinking things that are in line with the psalm here, God, are you not going to call people to account for all of this? Well, we know the answer. We know he will. He said it in, said it in, in Genesis. He said it again all over the book of Matthew. And then we can be encouraged. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Because hiding the word away in our heart, being aware of what God says, makes us stronger to endure this life. Because it's trying. It's constantly poking and pulling and prodding at us, trying to bring us somewhere where we should not go. And that's the encouragement of Psalm 119 and verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so this is bringing us to verse 14 where we see this pivot in the psalmist. And I think his mind as he's lamenting, as he's putting forth all of his concerns and fears and arguments and, and, and things he's frustrated about before God, I think his mind starts to think on the truths of who God is. The, the, perhaps the scriptures that he's read or the, the impressions that he has of who God is and what his character is that start to be mal-aligned with the complaining that he's been putting in front of God. And this can happen in us as well. As we start to bundle up and wrap and describe the way that we're feeling to God, perhaps we'll, we'll think of scriptures or we'll think of characteristics about God that are out of line with the way that we're putting our thoughts together. And that's helpful. It helps us to, to self-correct a little bit. Verse 14 and 15, he says, But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. See, he's turned the corner. Everything was desperate, and, and, and he was bemoaning all of these situations, and something triggered in his mind, and he said, wait, that's not true. You don't not hold people to account. You absolutely hold people to account. Of course, God sees and is aware. Look at Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jeremiah 16, 17, For my eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Hebrews 4, 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Even if you clean up your prayers and bring God just the good stuff, 
or maybe the, the, the struggles that you think actually make you look more holy. Um, we, were, we were talking this morning about, about the sin of pride. Um, and if you look in the book of Ezekiel, it, it seems like he's talking to the king of Tyre there for a moment, and then it slips into this story about the way that Satan fell from the heavens, and he was cast down to the earth like a, like a profane thing. And what caused this fall was taking pride in his beauty. God had created him as the, as, as the angel of light, right? As the, this like worship leader in all of the heavens. And then he took pride in the way that God created him. He took that glory that was to be God's and took it on to himself. And this was sin. This separated him from God. And so we can kind of, even in our prayer lives, bundle up our concerns in ways that make us sound like we're actually doing a little better than we are. God, help me with my humility. We don't really mean it. Or maybe even in the, in the context of a, um, a compliment, right? Somebody says, oh, you're really good at that thing. You say, no, I'm really not. And really what you're saying is, come on, shovel it on. Tell me more how great I am, right? I had a friend over that made pizza this weekend, and he was kind of doing that. He's like, my pizzas aren't very good. He just wanted people to tell him, no, 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 man, your pizzas are great. His weak, weak emotions like that, right? But we can do that in the way that we pray to God. So we have to be very careful and really think about, like, what, what am I struggling with? What am I wrestling with? And bundle all that up and bring it before God. But then think about the word, the word, the scriptures. Is there anything in the scriptures that's hidden away in my heart that I might not sin against him that, that can bring me back in, that can bring me into better, closer fellowship? Like I said, we would do well to remember that the word is the living word. Just before Hebrews 4.13 that said, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It said in verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, in discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what we have. That's describing the scriptures is to be able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We should spend time in prayer and we should spend time in the word. I think so often, we, you know, we live in this microwave world, right? Like most of you probably pop the door open on the microwave with like somewhere between two and five seconds left because you just can't wait that extra five seconds for the full 30 to tick off on your pseudo warm cup of coffee. This is how impatient we've become, right? It used to, listen, I'm going to tell you, life used to be hard, right? If you wanted to watch a show on television, you used to have to go to a specific channel. You used to have to wait like an hour before the show that you wanted to watch would scroll by so you could know like what time your show came on. And man, if you like left the room to go get something to drink or take a break from it, and you came back and that channel was gone, you had to wait another hour for that thing to scroll back by. Life was tough. If you wanted to call somebody, you hope they didn't have too many zeros in their number. You know what I'm saying? It took too long to do that. And so now that life is good, we have cell phones and airplanes and... Uh, Spotify. I was joking with my son just yesterday. I was like, dude, what if Spotify was out in the 90s and like you, you had to call a phone number and ask him to play a song? There's just somebody sprinting around in the background with CDs and tapes 
trying to play them for you really quickly. We've become impatient, I think, in a lot of ways and really demanding. So we do well sometimes to slow down and, and, and take on the process of the answer and not just the end state of the answer. So sometimes the process is equally as important, especially in the kingdom of God, right? If I'm struggling with something as a, in the mind, mindset of someone today, I want the answer right now. Just tell me which website has the answer. But what if the process is more important than the answer? What if you going into the Word and, and, and diving in and reading a little bit is more important than the answer? What if the, the time spent in prayer is what God is driving you to? What if God is allowing these things to occur so that you will slow down, so that you will pray, so that you will read the Word? I think sometimes we're, we're, we're very quick to pick up the phone and ask someone for the answer. Hey, I'm, I'm struggling with, I have a problem with this thing. Can you tell me what the answer is going to be? Sometimes the process of spending time in the Word, the process of talking to our Father God is more important than just getting to the answer of the thing that's going on in our life right now. So what's the common thread? God is active and alive. He cares for His people like a father, but more perfectly than a father. Prayer and talking to God causes us to consider even more our weaknesses and our fears and bring them to our perfect Father God that cares for us. And so we've rounded this corner where the psalmist was struggling. He was looking at the world around him. He was looking at the people around him. and said, these people that don't even care a thing about God. You hold them to no account. You allow all these things to happen, God. Why do you allow the poor to be treated the way that the poor are treated by a world who is looking to trap them? Why is it that the rich just amass piles of money and squash anyone below them with no care or concern? God, why do you allow this to happen? To now in verse 16, he's saying, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted and you will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. What happened? What happened to change his whole position, all of his frustrations, all of his emotions, all of his faculties to being almost to the point of seeming angry with God, to the point of glorying in God, all in the same psalm. This 10th psalm has the full spectrum of the Christian experience. Anger and frustration at the world around us. What's going on? God, where are you? To God, you're right here. You're being patient with people, but you will judge. There will be no idle word. And so for the Christian, we get relief from bundling up our concerns and our fears and placing them before God. Because we know God is the one who whose word in Matthew 7, 8 and 9 says, for everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Now does that mean that when I go home tonight and I go into my private prayer place and I ask God for a Bugatti, that he will give me 
a Bugatti, I could prove to you that he won't because I do not have one. It's talking about something so much more than that. It's talking about that once, once we've laid our prayers and our requests and made them known before God, we can then step back and go from there trusting that whatever it is that we need, whatever it is that's in line with his will, he will give us. He's a good father. He's not going to come for a meal and he's going to give us a rock or a snake or a scorpion. He will give us what we need. And so we get to trust him in that. I know that I've made my request known. Now I trust that my good Father will give me what I need. Sometimes what we need is a little bit more trial. Now I will tell you, I always want a little bit less trial. Right? If I can pick my mode of death, it will be in my sleep. And I mean totally asleep. Deepest kind of sleep. Unaware of what's going on. I don't mean like waking up with a pillow over my face because I'm annoying. I mean completely asleep. That's what I pick. What is God going to give me? I do not know. But I trust Him in it. Completely. Matthew 6, 25 through 27. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Praying to God honestly grows our faith and encourages us. It encourages us to trust Him and it conforms us more into Jesus' image over time. And that's the life of the believer. That's what we want as the believers, to be made more and more into the image of Christ. All over the Scriptures we've read today, we've seen Jesus say, when you pray. That always sticks out to me, right? Just like when you fast. It, it, it assumes that in your Christian experience, these are things that you are doing. When you pray, he says. Let's be a praying people. I don't know about you, but sometimes in the busyness of life, that can be the first thing that slips from my experience, from my life. I start trusting myself. I start pushing God to the background. I don't participate in praying. And that's where, that's where it all starts to go south. Um, I remember early in, in driving, I remember someone telling me, like, when the headlights come, because headlights, they, like headlights, you used to have halogen headlights and they were pretty bright. They're not like today's headlights. Like these things, man, they point those at your face and you can see, you can see your retina reflecting in the back of your brain, these LED headlights. But I remember somebody telling me one time, what you look at is where you'll tend to drift, right? So if you look at the, the, the line, the white line on the right-hand side of the road, you'll kind of drift that way. But if you're staring into these headlights, guess where your car starts to go? Straight into that thing. And the Christian life, the Christian experience is similar. Wherever your gaze is, whatever you're concentrated on, you drift in that direction. So stepping away from having a life of prayer, stepping away from, from experiencing your life together with other believers, stepping away from reading in the Word is to step away and float away and drift away from God. And so we can recognize that. We can recognize and course correct. 
We can say, I haven't been spending time praying like I usually do. And so we can come back. And so remember, I asked two opening questions of Psalm 10, of the whole of Psalm 10. They experience from verse 1 all the way through verse 18, and that is, what caused the psalmist to change course? And is there something that I can learn from that? And so you'll have opportunity today after service. We have a, a time of prayer up front. We have some things that we'll be praying over. You can bring any requests that you have, and, and we'll pray together over that. Um, also, you have the opportunity to extend that all throughout your week this week. Take on a pattern of a praying life. If you've been slipping, get back into a routine of praying. Or, you know, it's not like you have to have a carved out time of prayer. You can pray to God all day throughout the day about all kinds of things. And then the second question was, is there something that I can learn from this? And I baited that a little bit because I think the answer is yes. I think as we bundle up our concerns and our prayers and our fears and our hopes and our dreams and we put them before God in prayer, one, we can be more confident in our day-to-day -day life knowing that God gives us exactly what we need. But number two, it also gives us an opportunity to consider whether we've understood something incorrectly. As we hide the word of God away in our hearts, as we bundle up our thoughts and our concerns and our fears and our hopes and our dreams, sometimes we might recognize, oh, Scripture spoke to this directly, and I am way off base. Or maybe, wow, I've, I'm speaking about something that Scripture says. Let's read about that more. But we cannot forget that the Scripture is the living, breathing word of God that can divide bone and marrow, soul and spirit. So I want to encourage us to be a praying church in a scripture-reading church, and trust the God with the journey. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the body that you've given us, Lord, to study with and, and experience living together as believers. God, we do pray for those who are traveling today. Uh, God, those who, are, those who are sick, we pray, uh, we pray for, for, for Abby uh, and the baby, Lord. Um, pray for Tanya. We pray for all of the concerns that you are aware of in our midst, God, that maybe we even aren't. And I pray that we become a church that's a praying church. Um, God, I pray that that is a marker of who we are. Also, that we are a church who loves your word and spends time in your word. And God, as we counsel one another, as we talk to one another, as we go about our day, that the very words of your word are on our lips, God, that we be a people of the book. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.